Go and find Romans 14 with me. One uh, housekeeping note real quick. Uh, After the sermon this morning, several of you asked about uh, having the 10 questions for my sermon on a sheet to keep, and so I printed those out. A few of you I've given them to that asked, um, but they're out there on the lectern where you sign up for the sermon CDs. So those are out there. Uh, Romans 14 is is a wonderful chapter about unity. It's about how people from very different backgrounds, with different upbringings, with different cultural uh, custom backgrounds, different classes of people. It's about how all these different kinds of people can be thrown together in one group and somehow manage to get along. It's about how to achieve peace and unity under the banner of Christ in a local church. And we hear that, and you get the overall message of Romans 14, we all say, well, who wouldn't want that? How ironic, then, that Romans 14 has, has perhaps been the most controversial chapter of Romans among our brethren. It's a chapter that's meant to promote unity, which has been, in some cases, a cause of fighting and division. Well, I think we first need to affirm that whoever's fault it is, it's not Paul's, and it's not the Holy Spirit's. It's our fault. But despite its controversy, we just desperately need to understand Romans 14, because it's an essential part of our working together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We believe if we will successfully apply Romans 14, that this congregation will be strong and vibrant, Christ-like, and of one mind. So, this morning, this evening, I want us to think about how to get along when we disagree, about the message of Romans 14. Nothing fancy. We're just going to sort of talk through the text and get the highlights. Now, before we jump in, let's first sort of understand what the dynamic in the Church of Rome must have been like uh, in order for Paul to have to write this chapter urging these brethren to unity. So, the church in the New Testament starts, you'll recall, as an exclusively Jewish entity. All the first Christians are Jews, Pentecost happens in Jerusalem. But very quickly, as read along in Acts, Gentiles begin to be incorporated. Just look at Paul's own travels. When he arrives in a town, where does Paul usually go first to preach in a new town? Well, he goes to the synagogue, and he preached to the Jews for a few Sabbaths. Some would believe, others wouldn't. Eventually, the hostility would sort of boil over. He'd get run out of the synagogue. And when the Jews were hostile to Paul, where would he go and preach next in the town? Well, he would go to the Gentiles. He'd go to the other side of the tracks and preach to them, where he often experienced even greater success. But then, after that, after Paul had converted all these people from all different sides of town, all these different backgrounds, all these different knowledge levels, people with different different opinions and convictions about nearly everything aside from Jesus, he collects them together into one body, and he says, All right, now you're the church. Act like it. Paul does not establish two churches in each town, a Jewish church and a Gentile church. He establishes one. And he expects them to get along, well, because that's God's expectation. And so despite the racial differences, the different religious backgrounds, different cultures, despite Jewish convictions that having any dealings with Gentiles made you unclean, they're all thrown together in the New Testament and told, now, get along. Now, That creates some issues. Now, come to the city of Rome, and you've got this dynamic, I think, times about 10. In in AD 49, the Roman emperor, Emperor Claudius cast out the Jews from the city for five years. This is actually mentioned in Acts 
18, as well as in secular history. They sort of scapegoated the Jewish community about some things. And so during those five years, who's left in the Roman church? Presumably it would have been a sort of mixed church before, but for five years it's an exclusively Gentile church. Now imagine after those five years, Jewish Christians begin return to the church, begin to return to the church, which has now taken on a distinctly Gentile flavor. Jewish customs like circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, kosher customs had been ignored likely altogether. And when the Jews who still held on to these customs came back into town and into the church, what's that, what's that a recipe for? It's a recipe for conflict and division. It's into a setting like that that Romans 14 is written. So let's think about how to get along when we disagree. This is Romans 14 and verse 1. Paul's first piece of advice is this. Don't quarrel over opinions. Verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let the one who eats, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So we will see here this, this, uh, throughout the chapter this terminology of strong and weak. And we will find that by weak, Paul means someone who does not have a full understanding of God's will. Uh, more specifically, someone who, who tends to have more scruples than God does. He sort of has uh, extra extra rules for themselves that they're trying to follow that God has not bound on. So maybe that's someone who is young in the faith. Maybe it's someone who has deep cultural convictions that they have trouble differentiating from God's will and have trouble setting aside. And the way it works itself out in Romans 14 is something like this, that some are deeply convicted that they should not do certain things. They're deeply convicted they should not eat meat or, or should not eat certain kinds of meat. Or they're deeply convicted convicted that you should not neglect the Jewish holy days, despite the fact that, of course, God had permitted any kind of meat, and despite the fact that God had said one need not keep all these Jewish, Jewish holy days. And so the question is, what should we do with this one who is weak, with this one whose understanding is not as full as it could be? What do we do? Do we beat them over the head with the Bible? Do we start a fight with them about everything we think they're wrong about? Do we nitpick their every conviction that we think is dumb? Do we quarrel with them? Verse 1 says, welcome him. Paul specifically says not to quarrel over opinions. Your version might say doubtful disputations or scruples. Don't argue, but welcome. Now we need to state very clearly here, the Bible teaches that there are times when we give error no quarter, no welcome. Not too long ago, we looked at 2 John. And 2 John wrote to some people who had contact with preachers who were denying that Jesus ever came in the flesh. To which John said to these people, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this teaching about Jesus' incarnation, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Now look again at Romans 14 and verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. So the man in Romans 14 gets welcomed. The man in 2 John does not get welcomed. Which is to say we're talking here about two different kinds of people, two different situations. The false teacher of of 2 John or or the unrepentant sinner, the the sort of uh, instantiated sinner, I won't change my ways. 
This man is nowhere to be found in Romans 14. And so if we want to make Romans 14 say we can tolerate sin, we want to make Romans 14 say that we can have fellowship with people who are not in fellowship with God, then we're not treating the text properly. It's dealing with differences of opinion, not differences over the core facts of the gospel. Well, here's the so what so far. We need the ability to discern when something that I, uh, an opinion that I hold is just that, an opinion, versus when something I believe is a matter of uncompromised truth. Because let's be honest, sometimes we hold our opinions just as strongly as we hold matters of faith. Maybe we can't even tell the difference. Some of us kind of have one mode, which is, I'm always right. If I open my mouth and say it, it's absolutely true. All my think-sos are gospels, and if everyone ever are gospel, and if if anyone ever disagrees with me, then that just shows that they're kind of an ignoramus. We need the spirit that says, not everything everything I think is God's law. Not everything I think should be something I go to war over. I need to be able to, to discern between gospel truth and my own subjective opinion, and I need to have very different tones and very different dispositions for how I talk about each of those. My opinion or God's uncompromising truth. Well, verse 2, Paul gives an example of one of these opinions that might be a point of contention, which is diet. Verse 2, one person believes him to eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So again, the church in Rome contained Jews and Gentiles, people which grew, which grew up with very different convictions and attitudes towards certain foods. We know that Jews had very specific dietary restrictions under the law of Moses, and we also know that those restrictions have been lifted Christ. This business, by the way, of uh, not eating meat whatsoever is probably a sign that um, in that day and time, um, you just really couldn't be confident that the meat you got in a city like Rome would be killed in a kosher way. And so to be safe, many Jews simply said, we're just going to be vegetarians. Sort of like Daniel in, uh, in the beginning of Daniel when he simply says, let us just eat vegetables. That's because the king's court could not be relied on to have, to have uh, food, kosher food. And so we know the Jews had these specific restrictions, and we also know that those restrictions have been lifted in Christ. You know the story where Peter sees the vision of clean and unclean animals? God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat what God has made clean. Do not call common. We know that Paul and the apostles went to bat for the Gentiles, arguing vehemently that they did not have to obey Jewish customs. Christ alone was enough. But say you're a Jew. And you've grown up eating only certain things and believing other things made you unclean. And then say at 60 years old, you've become a Christian. And you're at your Christian brother's house who happens to be a Gentile, which that alone is a huge step. It's a huge step out of the limb for you to even go to a Gentile's house. And you go to his house and you get set in front of you a giant pork chop. I think it's hard for us to appreciate that predicament. You may know in your head it's okay. You may know the story of Peter and the clean and unclean animals. You know it's in in, in your head, but your conscience has not caught up with your intellect. All your life you've had drilled into you how unclean pork is. And you can't just flip a switch and say, you know, forget everything your ancestors believed for thousands of years and everything I was ever taught. In verse 2, one person knows there's no such thing as unclean food. The other out of conscientious conviction, has never in their life touched certain foods and doesn't want to start now. It would just feel dirty. So what should they do? Should they duke it out? Should they start two churches, the meat-eating church and the vegetarian church? Verse 3 has the answer. 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So you can imagine the pork chop eater enjoying his meal and looking over at the Jewish convert refusing to eat it and saying, you know what, this is ridiculous. You Jews and your silly convictions, don't you know God has given us this? Can't you be thankful for God's blessings? You could hear the disdain. You could hear the sneering judgment. Paul says to that attitude, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. But now you're on the other side of the table. And imagine the Jewish convert who abstains from the pork chop, looking over at the Gentile, gobbling his up, and he says to himself, you know, I can't believe this. You Gentiles have no sense of decency. You have no appreciation for the history of God's people. I bet, you know, you're so biblically illiterate, you couldn't even find Genesis or Leviticus in the Bible. And he passes judgment on his brother for eating. Paul says to him, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. See, Paul has a problem with both attitudes. Everyone gets a word in this chapter. The eater who despises the abstainer and the abstainer who passes judgment on the eater both get told something. Both get told, you know what? Both of you be done with that attitude. God has accepted and welcomed both of you, no matter your dietary habits, which means if God has accepted you, you better accept each other. So Paul ends verse 3 by stressing, God has welcomed this brother with different opinions. Now he adds this in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You see the question, who are you? We would put it this way. Who do you think you are? Who are you to judge the servant of another? So you're both fellow servants of God. Neither of you is the Lord. Neither of you is the master. Both of you are servants of the master. So how can you judge Jesus' servant for Jesus? How can you despise someone that the master accepts? So in order to do successfully what Paul is is, is urging here, not to quarrel over opinions as he says in verse 1, Really, I think the key word here is discernment. Discernment is the order of the day. We need to have the ability to examine things, examine what we think, examine opinions that we hold, even if we've held them for a very long time. We have to be very honest with ourselves about what we believe. We cannot just formulate our opinions, baptize them with a few proof texts, and then fight to the death over them, which is what I'm afraid many, what many brethren do. We need real self-examination. Am I just doing this because this is what I've always done? Do I think this is wrong just because that's what I've always thought? Paul would say, unless you can trace it to the word of God and show, show where God has said it, then we need to stay away from despising or passing judgment on others who do not share my opinions. And I also want to stress on this point. Everyone in Romans 14 has work to do. On any given issue, whether you think you're a strong brother or a weak brother, whether you think you know something and someone else doesn't, or vice versa, everyone has work to do in this chapter. No one is off off the hook. No one is ever allowed to sit back and say, you know what, you need to do Romans 14, as if I don't. Notice verse 3 again. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Whatever side of the issue you're on, the eating side or the abstaining side, you have work to do. If you think you should eat, if you think we should abstain, if you think something is wrong, if you think something is perfectly acceptable, you have work to do. 
Romans 14 is not a trump card one side can, can use to hold the congregation hostage to their opinions. You know, I have a problem with this. Romans 14 says you should acquiesce to my demands. That person is not doing Romans 14 the second they say that. Paul has an assignment for everyone in this text. And so number one, how to get along when you disagree. Don't quarrel over opinions. Number two, focus on God. In verse 5, Paul uses another example to illustrate his point here. The example now is uh, esteeming days, one day over another. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than, than another, while another esteems all days alike. And here's Paul's, Paul's word to that. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So this, this also relates to Jewish customs being maintained by Jewish converts to Christ. Jews, of course, had special days in the law of Moses, festivals and feasts, new moons and Sabbaths. The person who esteems one day as better than another is probably referring to a Jew who, for example, still honored the Sabbath. He'd become a Christian, but he still honored the Sabbath. It was a lifelong custom. They still saw the wisdom in maintaining a day of rest, and we should say there is wisdom in such a thing. They still think that they should exercise faith, that they should illustrate this faith, that they don't have to be a workaholic in order for God to provide for them. They can rest. They don't have to work their fingers to the bone. They trust that God will provide. Perhaps they have a personal custom of prayer and reading and fasting on the Sabbath, which they felt connected them to God, and they didn't want to stop being connected to God in this way. And so that's one side of it. But on the other hand, you've got someone else who esteems all days alike. A Jewish feast day doesn't mean much to a Gentile. He might not even know when the Passover is. Do you, by the way? Do you know when the Passover is? I don't think I do. He might barely notice when there's a new moon, and even if he does, he doesn't see a religious significance in it. Do you, by the way? Do you know when there's a new moon, and do you find a religious significance? Uh, any God-fearing Jew would. Paul says, wherever you are on that spectrum, spectrum what, what should you do? Here's his advice in verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced of his own mind. What does that mean? Basically, it means... Mind your conscience. Because maintaining a clear conscience is very important to Paul. He has just said this in Romans 13 and verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. There are few things more valuable than a well-trained and sensitive conscience. And Paul doesn't want to tell anyone to violate their conscience willy-nilly, even if they might be maintaining a Jewish holy day they didn't have to anymore. It would be too much to give up to say, you know what, I know you feel like you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't give it up, but, you know, just do it. Paul says that you shouldn't do that. Now, again, we're talking here about matters of opinion, not matters of objective faith or gospel truth. So if your conscience tells you to steal a car, you should disobey your conscience. But if your conscience is telling you to honor the Sabbath, you don't have to honor the Sabbath, but if your conscience is telling you you should honor the Sabbath, Paul says, by all means, do. I really want you to notice Paul's focus in verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You see the focus of this verse, the repeated idea. Everything happening here. This is sort of Paul's perfect world in verse 6. Everything happening in verse 6 is done toward God with a total focus on him. If you observe the day, observe it in honor of whom? The Lord. If you eat... If you eat the meat, eat in honor of whom? The Lord. Give thanks to him as you do. On the other hand, if you abstain, abstain in honor of whom? In honor of the Lord. Paul is emphasizing 
our faith and practices ultimately need to be centered on God, not centered on campaigning to change everyone else's mind, not on a crusade to stamp out every single difference of opinion, not making mountains out of every little molehill. How about think about God when you observe the day, not think about everyone who's not observing the day. That's what he says. You do what the Lord expects you to do. Focus on him. If you've observed the day, focus on glorifying God on that day with all your might, not the person who isn't observing it. If you abstain from eating the food, focus on God, not the people who are eating. If you eat the food, focus on thanking God for the food, not obsessing over the people abstaining from the food. Verse 7, he says this, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. You get the message over and over again in these verses. Jesus is Lord. Let him be Lord. Not you be Lord. Him be Lord. Don't try to be Lord for him. And don't let the Lord get lost in your dealing with your brethren over these different opinions. Don't let the Lord get lost in your thoughts about eating food and observing days. Don't lose your focus. It's not about you. It's about the one who died for you and rose again. Verse 10, he continues on this train of thought. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Drew. Will every knee bow to Drew? Will Drew be the final judge of all your scruples? Will you be the final judge of all of mine? No, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Every knee shall bow to God. Remembering that in our differences of opinion will keep us from drawing lines and quarreling and passing judgment and despising and dividing over nonsense. Remember, I'm not the judge, but I do know who he is. So Paul's point in these verses is this. Keep focusing on the Lord. We could develop, I think, a very short-sighted, people-centered faith that only ever looks around and, and, and wants to compare what everyone else is doing, what everyone else is saying, what everyone else is thinking. And there's a certain kind of urge that wants to keep everyone else in line. And we want everyone to fit in, into our exact idea of everything Christians, Christians should be doing. But Paul says, remember who this is about. This is not about you. You're not the Lord. You're not the judge. It's not about your scruples. not about your opinions. It's not about Jews here and Gentiles there. It's not about where you've come from, where they come from, the customs you keep, the customs they keep. It's not about the persons you you butt your your heads with in church over this or that. This is all about Jesus. And the second you forget that, you stop doing Romans 14. And so number two, how to get along when we disagree. Keep your focus on God. Finally, number three, make sacrifices. Be ready to make sacrifices. So our focus is on the Lord. And because our focus is so strongly on God, when I do get around to thinking about other people, even then I'm still sort of focused on God. I see them not as sort of me and them, but rather through the prism of of God, my relationship with him. I'm not obsessed with them making them clones of me. I'm obsessed with their standing before the Lord. And so because of that, Paul says, I resolve not to do anything that might hinder him in his standing before God. So he says this in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. 
And I think this resolution in verse 13 sets the tone for the rest of the chapter, which is all about making personal sacrifices we have to in order to spare the the good conscience of our brother. I think we each need to make the resolution of verse 13 ours. I will not put anything in the way of my brother or sister that needlessly causes them to stumble in their walk with the Lord. Whatever sacrifices I have to make in order to keep that resolution are worth it. Verse 14, Paul hones in on this issue of the conscience some more. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But, he says, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, keep in mind, this is a chapter about differences of opinion. Things that are fine in and of themselves, like whether or not you eat the pork chop. So what is with this verse? Paul is not saying here, nothing is wrong in the world unless you think it is. Right and wrong are totally subjective. That's not what he's saying, of course. Murder is always wrong, even if you don't think it is. Even if you think it is. Verse 14 is bound by that context. He's probably thinking in particular about this food issue here. There is no such thing as unclean food anymore. We know that. That's sort of an objective fact. Except there is a circumstance in which food does become unclean. The second half of verse 14, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Then it becomes unclean. In other words, to do something that violates your conscience, to eat unclean meat, if that violates your conscience and you do it on purpose, is to render that act unclean. Paul's point is, conscience is serious business. We don't want to needlessly violate our conscience. And as important, here's the key, we don't want to needlessly violate the consciences of others. And we don't want to cause them to violate their conscience. This is something Christians think about. We don't want any of our brethren to do wrong. We also don't want any of our brethren to do anything they think is wrong. Verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So if I ignore the conscience of my brother, like eat the unclean meat, eat the pork chop in front of my Jewish brethren, I grieve him because of that. I am no longer acting in love. And in fact, I may destroy the one for whom Christ has died, in which case this act, which in and of itself is not wrong, has become rank evil. Does any of that sound good? Paul is trying to show the evil and spiritual destruction that can occur when we violate the consciences of our brethren. So Paul is saying, don't don't go around simply saying the American thing. It's my right. I have a right. I'll eat what I want. Leave me alone. You do you. I'll do me. Get over it. There are other factors at play. If you have the mind of Christ, there are other factors at play. Like, for example... Will my brother be grieved? Am I walking in love? Might I destroy the one for whom Christ died? Will this be spoken of as evil? And if it will, that's kind of a problem. See, Paul is calling us to a higher level of spiritual maturity. The baby question is, is this allowed? That's the spiritual baby question. The mature question is, how will this affect my brother? 
I think verse 17 is a very important verse. It puts the whole chapter in a badly needed perspective. Verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. At the end of the day, these issues we're talking about, the kosher laws, the feast days, and all of this, it's, not, it's just not that important. It's just not. There are very important things that we are about in the church that we will not give an inch on. But these things, these aren't those. What you eat and drink, what days you observe, these are not worth arguing over or clinging to. It would be downright evil to divide over them. And so if you've got to give up some of your rights, that's worth it. Because what matters in the kingdom is not eating and drinking. What matters in the kingdom is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. When we're with God in eternity, we will not be grousing about how miserable it was we had to accommodate our idiosyncratic brother who had some weird convictions about food. I'll tell you what we'll be doing in eternity with that brother. We'll be rejoicing that they are with us in eternity because we put righteousness and joy and peace before we put our rights. That's what we'll be thinking about in eternity. And one of the through lines of the New Testament is, how about start thinking that way now before we get there? I think the word I key most in on in verse 17 is this word, peace. Because it stands in such opposition to the needless quarreling over opinions. And peace is what Paul emphasizes next in verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Our goal, our pursuit is peace and mutual upbuilding. Our goal in our pursuit is not getting my way. Our goal in pursuit is not never having to give up anything. It's not being a church where everyone is, is, is a little clone of me and everyone shares my little opinion about every little thing. God is far more concerned about peace and spiritual growth than he is about our individual rights, which means we need to be more concerned about peace and spiritual growth than we are about our little individual rights. Verse 20, Paul really gets down to business here, some of the strongest language in the chapter. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make, a, make another stumble by what he eats. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. He says, keep your scruples in perspective. Okay, your Jewish brother, brethren are strange and wrong-headed about their kosher customs and holy days. They're a little too clingy to those, Maybe. Okay, your Gentile brethren are kind of insensitive and kind of ignorant about that kind of thing. Okay, probably also true. Is it important enough to go to war over? Is it important enough to divide the church over and to witness to the world that, hey, these Christian people, they really can't get along. They use this highfalutin language of family and brethren and stuff, but they don't mean it. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God, he says. Are you really going to destroy God's work over a pork chop? Let's just put that on the board and say, that's what we're doing. Really highlight in your mind, verse 21, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. I don't think I could say it any clearer than that. If something is going to make my brother stumble, I don't want to do it, even if I think I have a right to. We'll abstain from anything that will harm my brother. I think one of the reasons we have trouble with this chapter, we use loosely at it, here, I don't think there's a huge problem with this. I'm speaking generally. But I think one of the reasons we have trouble, we argue about it, we have trouble wrapping our minds around it, is because we are so individualistic. 
and we are so liberty rights focused in this country. Uh, we do live in the most individualistic, rights-obsessed culture that has ever existed. We give people advice like assert your rights, don't let anyone tell you what to do, be true to yourself, assert yourself and all of that. Romans 14 just says pretty much the opposite of all of that. Verse 21 says God's kingdom is more important than your rights. It is. What God's doing is more important than you getting to do what you want. Your brother's conscience takes precedent over your preferences. Stop doing things, this chapter says. Stop doing things you have every right to do. Verse 22 and 23 reinforce a lot of this. The faith that you have, he says, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So his advice here is act in faith, whatever you do. Keep a clean conscience as much as you possibly can. Don't quarrel over opinions and focus on God. Verse 23 even advises the one with the scruple to keep obeying the scruple. That's better than getting in the habit of violating your conscience. But also remember, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Everyone has work to do in this chapter. Here's another important thing about Romans 14, and that is it doesn't end in Romans 14. Some of the best verses about Romans 14 are in Romans 15. Uh, just to be honest, it's a bad chapter division. Verse, chapter 15 and verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with, the, bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of your Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as, God, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The question is, what are we really about? <clears throat> what do we really care about the most? You know, most of us have opinions. We all have opinions. Most of us have pretty strong opinions about stuff. And, you know, we wouldn't hold opinions we thought were wrong. So we hold opinions because we think they're right. But how strongly do I feel about my brother? That's the question. We know how strongly we feel about our opinions. Here's the question. Put that on the scale next to how strongly you feel about your brother. Your brother with different opinions, maybe. Am I more concerned with pleasing myself or more concerned with doing good to him? Am I more concerned with my rights or with my brother's soul? Who does verse 3 say our example is in all of this? Who's the consummate example of not pleasing ourselves? It's Christ. He quotes here from Psalm 69 in verse 9 and verse 4. And make sure we understand there, Psalm 69 should not just characterize Jesus, this business here, about things that are written aforetime, often quoted about the Old Testament in general. But he's saying something a little more specific than that. What he's saying is that spirit of Psalm 69 that was embodied in Jesus, it's written for us. It's not just written for him. It's not just a back then kind of thing. It's written to encourage us to have the same mind. Paul expresses his final wishes in verses 5 through 7. It's a picture of unity. He says, live in harmony. His aspiration is together you may with one voice glorify God. We'll do that in eternity how about start doing it now? Welcome one another as, God, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I want you to notice verse 7 is a beautiful bookend 
to the whole chapter. Chapter 14, we, are open, we open with this. Welcome him. As for the one who is weak, welcome him. Chapter 15 and verse 7, as Christ has welcomed you. The section is bookended by this theme of welcoming. Living together in Christ-like harmony. The only way that will happen in a diverse church, people from different backgrounds, cultures, opinions, the only way that unity, that welcoming happens if everyone, is if everyone does what's in between those two bookends of welcoming. If we don't quarrel over opinions, if we focus on God, and if we're ready to sacrifice. So as we wrap up, a couple of uh, concluding thoughts uh, to our study of Romans 14. First of all, I want to point out the irony once more of what so often has happened with, with Romans 14 among some of our brethren. What has happened is we argue about Romans 14. We make lists of things we think do or don't fit in Romans 14. And then we argue about those lists and we cast each other out instead of welcome each other. Please don't let the irony of all of this be lost on you. A chapter meant to promote unity in churches has become a cause of contention and division. Maybe to think of it another way, the one thing we've been unified on is not doing Romans 14 together. Let me also say this. Romans 14 is not unique. This is not some strange corner of the New Testament that's completely different from the rest of the Bible. Some odd thing. This is not a chapter for preachers and editors to fight over. This is basic disciple stuff taught by Jesus himself. So this business, don't quarrel over opinions. Go read First and Second Timothy and Titus and see how often he tells them that. The other places in Scripture tell us it's really important to focus on God is, is making sacrifices for the sake of another, is that a foreign concept to the Bible? I don't think so. This is not some strange little corner of the Bible. This is really pretty, pretty, uh, pretty much at the heart of the Christian spirit. And finally, I want to say this. To do Romans 14, we have to reject cultural norms. We have to have a different mindset than our culture tells us to have. We are a rights-focused society. We love our rights, and we wail and scream if we think someone infringes on our rights. The suggestion that we might willingly give up our rights is completely foreign to our culture. It's evil in the mind of many. Yet that's exactly what Romans 14 calls us to do. You know, there's there's a book I uh, am aware of defending a certain practice, and the name of the book is We Have a Right, as if that settles the matter. Romans 14 teaches us we need to think less about our rights I want you to think more about our brethren and more about their consciences. And so I hope this study will help you, will help us. I don't think I've answered every question about this. I just think we need to keep our nose in the text of this great chapter and keep striving to do it. Maybe there's someone here this evening that realizes you have not embodied what's in this, what's in this chapter, this loving others, loving my brethren, sacrificing, and being like Jesus. Maybe there's someone that needs to come and repent. Whatever your spiritual need, come forward now as we stand and sing.
Oh! 